Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to another episode of Que Pasa HSIs. This episode marks the halfway point in season two, which means we have shared 15 episodes of the podcast since our launch date of September 12th, 2022. To all our new listeners and subscribers, welcome. I hope you are enjoying the weekly platica, storytelling, and co-creation of knowledge. It is truly an honor to serve as your host and bring you juicy and delicious topics each week. In this episode, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Paloma Vargas, who is the Dean of Math, Science, Health, Kinesiology, and Athletics at Oxnard College, a two-year public HSI. In her capacity as Dean, Dr. Vargas works with administration, faculty, and staff to determine best practices in serving a diverse student population. Dr. Vargas received her BS in biology from the University of Texas at El Paso and El Paso Community College both HSIs, and her MS and PhD in Medical and Molecular Parasitology from the Vilsic Institute of Graduate Biomedical Sciences at NYU, New York University. Her graduate and postdoctoral work focused on host pathogen interactions of both parasitic amoeba and Legionella pneumophila, the causative agent of Legionnaire's disease. Dr. Vargas previously served as a biology faculty member, researcher, HSI director, science coordinator, and STEM advisor at private and public institutions. She's an active member of the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Latinos, and Native Americans in Science, or SACNAS, and serves as president of the Alliance of Hispanic Serving Institution Educators, or ASI. You probably remember that they appeared in episode two of this season, along with ASI Executive Director Yolanda Cataño. But I can assure you that this episode is completely brand new and full of STEM goodness. The focus on STEM is important, as there is a lot happening within STEM and HSIs. Title III HSI grants have historically had a focus on STEM, and with the entrance of the National Science Foundation as a major funder of HSI initiatives with their improving undergraduate STEM education HSI program, the faculty and leaders in science, engineering, mathematics, and technology fields must rethink the way they have delivered education, especially with the influx of Latine, Black, and Native students pursuing STEM degrees and careers. I first met Paloma at the ASI Best Practices Con Conference, but have worked with her in several capacities, including serving as editor for the chapter she co-authored with Matthew Ward called Building an HSI Brand, a Case Study of California Lutheran University, published in Hispanic Serving Institutions and Practice, Defining Servingness in HSIs. You can follow Paloma on social media where she posts about some of her favorite things, science, El Paso, and HSIs. And with that, enjoy the show. All righty, let's get it started. Dr. Vargas, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, let's talk about you. Go ahead and tell us about your higher education journey from access to completion. Well, thank you, Gina, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so as you mentioned, Paloma Vargas, and um, 
For me, something that I always start off with, and that's really important for me, is to say that I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. And if you've ever been to El Paso, it's a border town. It's absolutely beautiful. And so I spent most of my life going between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua. Um, and that really affected my um, educational journey in a couple of different ways. Um, my parents are immigrants, and so they moved to the U.S., uh, in the 70s, I believe. And I was, I ended up being the first one in my family go through the K through 12 system here in the US. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing in, in high school. And so um, even though I was a really great student, I just didn't think about applying for college. I had no idea how to do that. So I had the great fortune of applying to El Paso Community College, which is a fantastic HSI. Um, and that's where I began my higher ed journey. And I started off as a pre-med student thinking that I was going to go into medical school and uh, try to, I don't know, fix people. Um, and as I went through, uh, probably in my second year, I ended up meeting a fantastic faculty member um, who passed away a, a year or a year and a half ago at the big two years I guess at the beginning of the pandemic um and he asked me about doing research and I had zero clue what that meant um I have no idea what stem research looked like or what it was or what people did and you know he just kind of came up and said do you want to do research there's this program called bridges to the baccalaureate um, it was Bridges to the Future back then. It's an NIH-sponsored um, program that allows community college students to conduct research at four-year institutions with the idea of a bridge, that they're going to move into that four-year space. And so I started doing research on monarch butterflies, and it was the best experience. It was just amazing. I learned about monarch butterfly migration. Um, I had a fantastic mentor, Dr. Perez, uh, the, the faculty member at um, El Paso Community College was Dr. Dr. Nick Lanuti, uh, and they just really got me into research, and I still had this idea, I'm going to go to med school. Um, I ended up presenting at a conference at the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, uh, and was able to present a poster for research and had recruiters come and talk to me. And I didn't even know that that was a thing people did. I had no idea what a recruiter was or what they did or what they were doing. And uh, this woman, Debbie Stock, comes up to me and says, you should really do research over the summer at NYU. I didn't even know where NYU was. I could just tell you that. For being from El Paso, I had heard of NYU, but I didn't know where it was. This was before the internet was cheap and inexpensive. Um, it was, you know, I was over there in AOL with the weird noises coming out of the machine. And so I started looking up on Yahoo, you know, what is NYU? And I see this massive school with this massive program. And I decided to apply to their summer research program. And I got in. Um, and they uh, placed me in a lab that was a malaria lab because they didn't have any, a lot of ecology labs. And they thought butterflies and mosquitoes, they're both insects. So let's put you in that same space. And I started learning about immunology and parasites. And it was awesome. I thought it was the coolest thing that could ever happen. And I just was super sucked into research. 
I was fascinated by this idea that this tiny organism could manipulate somebody's body in a way that other things just can't do. And it's a eukaryote, so it's the same as us. It has all these different cellular components. It's a very complex system. And so I just kept doing research. I continued to do research after I transferred to the University of Texas, El Paso, which is another fantastic HSI. They've been, you know, they're a historical HSI, if we're going to name it that way. Um, And ended up completing my bachelor's in biology there and minor in chemistry. And I ended up applying to grad school and going out to grad school at NYU. Um, And at NYU, I you know, this was kind of this moment where I began understanding that not every community looked like El Paso. Um, El Paso is like 70, 80 percent Latinx. And I end up going to um, NYU and NYU is not (laughs) 80 percent Latinx. And, you know, for me, that was a big culture shock. Um, I had no professors that looked like me no Latinx professors, no Black professors. Um, The professors that we had that were not um, white Americans were from other countries. And they had a different perspective of what it was like to be a person of color in the U.S. So ended up finishing grad school. I was pretty much done with research. I was very annoyed with the white supremacist and the really just non-inclusive environments that I was in and decided to to step into teaching. And so I taught high school for a year in El Paso. I became a certified high school teacher in El Paso and I taught at El Paso Community College. And that was such a surreal moment um, where I was teaching with Nick Lanuti, who had been my mentor I was teaching with other faculty and they were all super supportive. And one of the things that they told me was, if you want to be a faculty member, you have to go get a postdoc. And so the journey continued and I ended up going to a a teaching postdoc. It's called the Institutional Research and Academic Career Development Award, also through the National Institutes of Health, IRACTA. And it's a postdoc where you split your time between teaching and Uh, research. And I ended up in Chicago at Northwestern and uh, was doing my teaching at uh, Northeastern Illinois University, which I know you're familiar with. And my mentor there was amazing and said, you know, how do you, you know, what do you see yourself doing from here on out? And um, that was Basically, the the you know the last pieces of education was really finishing completing this postdoc, and um, it was a great experience. It was um, also a very white institution, but I was able to then reach out to Northeastern Illinois, um, and they're an HSI, and you know that's where you know I, I really started getting um, more involved in serving my own community. 
Awesome. Thank you for that. I learned a lot just in that, that short amount of time about your, your, your journey. Um, and you start like sprinkling in the HSIs, right? Like this was an HSI and then it wasn't, and then an HSI and then it wasn't right. Like you're like crossing, but talk about crossing, uh, you know, borders, right. Between as far as institutional types. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your HSI consciousness and how you actually came to know that those were HSIs and what HSI is. Yeah, that's a great question. So I had absolutely zero clue that El Paso Community College and the University of Texas El Paso were HSIs. What I did know at the time when I was attending and then after was that they felt very different from every other place that I had been and that there were things that were happening on campus, on both campuses that just felt like home. You know, we had at UT El Paso uh, there was mariachi like every Tuesday for no apparent reason. It was just mariachi Tuesday. Um, we had a lot of faculty that looked like us. Um, you know, my research mentor is Cuban. So for me to really learn from her, that was amazing. I had for the first time a Latina that was teaching me science. And I I was like, this is a unicorn, right? These people don't exist. Um, but then as I continued to move forward in my education and started my postdoc, that's when I started really learning more about HSIs. I learned about Northeastern Illinois and their HSI mission and their HSI servingness um, and was just really excited by the type of work that they were doing. Um, It's a large number of students that are first generation. It's a Polish and Latinx community that is in that space. Um, a lot of students that are refugees as well. And as I started working within that space and learning more about it, it just started piquing my interest in a way that um, very few things had in the past, right? So parasites were really up my alley. And I was like, yeah, super stoked about parasites. And then I started learning about HSI-ness, um, which wasn't even a term until you coined it, by the way. But this HSI piece started learning about, you know, what HSIs were, um, and I just was really sucked in. And there was an opening at Northeastern Illinois for a position under a Title III grant. And I immediately hopped on it. I was like, I'm going to apply for this. This is going to be amazing. And I became a STEM specialist for their Student Center for Science Engagement. Um, and once I started in that space, it was almost like I got on this train and it hasn't stopped. Um, and I just keep learning and learning and learning. And Northeastern had this wonderful uh, symposium that they do every year where they highlight faculty work and work of the staff as well. And some of the folks that were working there at the time, and I, I believe they're still there, um, were talking about serving Latino students. And that was one of the first times that I heard about really intentionally serving students um and why it was important and one of the things that i really appreciated about working at the center for science engagement at northeastern was that there was this really intentional piece about serving latinx students and not all students and that was the first time i had heard that phrasing so i got sucked into the hsi journey and um, when I decided to apply for a faculty position, 
one of my criteria was that the place that I w- the places I was applying to were all HSIs. I just felt that that was really important. Um, being a product of an HSI that I contribute and give back to HSIs in whatever way that I could. And I ended up finding a position where I was a faculty member and director of HSI initiatives and went to your talk in Nevada at ASI, the Alliance of Hispanic Serving Institution Educators. And I think that might have been one of the first times you talked about decolonizing HSIs. And I was blown away. And although I had already started work on HSIs and thinking about how we could better serve our Latinx students, that was a pivotal moment. I remember exactly where you were standing, exactly what you're saying. I remember your slides. And I remember how the audience, we were all just looking at each other like, why aren't we doing this? And and I think that for many of us that are newer in this space, that's really what catapulted us forward. Um, And so that's how I got involved with HSIs. And and now I can't leave them. They're amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you bring that story up because Maribel Jimenez, right, who who was on episode 10 of season one, she shared the same story about that exact talk at ASI about decolonizing HSIs. And I remember I was down and she even said you were down there, right? It was like the stadium seating, um, mm-hmm. like lecture hall. And yep. you're right. Everybody was like really quiet and just sort of staring at me like, whoa, <laughs> like, are you serious? Is this really, could we really do this? Right. Um, what an important moment, I think for all of us, because for me too, right? Like I, I learn a lot from, from folks who are doing the work um, too, but yeah, no, once you get into it, right, you, you can't, can't get out and you clearly haven't because you've been working in HSIs um, ever since. I didn't know you had worked. Um, I don't think I knew at Northeastern Illinois, um, which yes, I do have a lot of connections to Northeastern Illinois. So definitely longstanding HSI as well. You mentioned um, Apaso being, you know, uh, uh, UTEP being a, a longstanding HSI. Um, NEIU has as well. So yeah, you've been in some of the some of the greats, right? They've been doing doing this work for for some time. So let's talk a little bit about your practice. Um, You have been successful at teaching and mentoring Latinx, Black, Indigenous, first generation, and low-income college students. You're also an academic leader within HSI, serving as Dean of Science and Math at two different um, institutions. So talk to us a little bit about your teaching philosophy, and specifically, if you could talk to us about how you bring in culturally relevant um, lenses and anti-racist lenses, because I know you use that framework into STEM teaching? Because I think that's, if we could figure that out, I know faculty listening are going to turn it up, right? Um, How do you do it? Because I know you are doing that. I I really appreciate you asking this question. Um, You know, it's something that I've been thinking about for a really long time. And um, I don't know that I have like an actual like teaching philosophy per se, Um, but I nothing that I've written down or that I have in a succinct way um, to spell out. Obviously, we have those that that we turn in whenever we're applying for uh, different positions. But I I think generally speaking, I, I really do believe that all students have the ability to succeed and that it's our job as educators um, to figure out how to help them succeed. Uh, you know, there are 
um, a variety of different methods and andragogy and pedagogy that we can use to really engage our students in that learning process. And, uh, you know, for me, teaching effectively is as much a process of learning from our students and from their community as much as, you know, they are learning from us. Um, and I don't know that we can really say that we're effectively teaching our students and helping them be successful if we don't have a basic understanding of who they are um, as individuals, their intersectionalities, their background, um, their community, what makes them tick, what makes them happy, what makes them sad, um, and how all of that impacts their learning. Um, you asked specifically about culturally relevant and anti-racist lenses in, in biology and as I've gone through the STEM disciplines and, you know, I mentioned my background is in microbiology. Um, I didn't really see a whole lot of people that look like me. And there's this idea in the sciences that we can't mix culture and science. Um, and I don't agree with that ideology at all. I think culture should be in our sciences. And I think it would be, we would be better scientists. We would have better science available to us if we took into account the culture of those people that are going to be the leaders of our future, the leaders of now, the leaders of, of our past. I think if, if we had gone and started, uh, you know, teaching culturally relevant pedagogy, you know, 20 years ago when I was coming up through school, I know, maybe not for a fact, but I know and I feel in my heart that a lot of the people that I went to school with that stopped out of the sciences, that left academia, that left sciences altogether, would still be here. They would still be doing the work. And we would have far more um, you know, knowledge of science than what we do right now. And I really do think it's imperative to teach both, right? To connect both culture and science within our educational spaces and within our industry spaces and our nonprofit spaces, because that's what's really going to lead us into the future. Um, I, you know, this whole idea that, you know, we should just move forward and the only thing that we should talk about is science is preposterous to me. Our students have knowledge, their parents and their ancestors have knowledge that they can share. And we can learn from our students. We can learn uh, either from our students themselves or by honoring um, the knowledge that their ancestors have given them, that their parents, their grandparents. I work at Oxnard College and we're surrounded by agricultural fields. I know that if I were to talk to one of my students who has worked the fields, whose parents have worked the fields, they know way more about plant biology than I ever will. I know that. Um, and, you know, we're not going to be able to change. And, and this is something that comes up on the regular of, well, biology is biology or science is science or physics is physics. And we're not going to change uh, what it is. And, and they're right, right? The components of a cell, um, the way that a cell wall or cell membrane work, um, the types of molecular processes that are happening through DNA replication, they don't change, but we can. What we can do is honor the knowledge that came from those silenced voices in the sciences. Uh, we can learn about all the people whose voices were never heard because of this uh, predominant white male uh, vision of a scientist. We can talk to our students about 
um, why it's important for them to learn all these things. We can talk about the ethics of science and, you know, really tell our students or our learners or, or um, you know, the folks in our classrooms and the folks within our learning spaces, why it's important to learn um, the past, the history of science. Uh, we can talk about, you know, populations that have higher propensities of, of diabetes and how some of those studies were not rooted in um, ethical, pedagogical, or, or research practice, right? That they focused on a very small, tiny community on the border of Texas, and that that's not representative of everybody in their community. Uh, we can talk about, you know, how, uh, why certain populations don't trust public health officials. We saw that all throughout the pandemic, and we've completely ignored it. And that's part of being culturally relevant and being anti-racist is that we bring up these difficult conversations within our classrooms. We talk about these things. Um, you know, I, I've had people ask me, including, um, you know, folks that I'm really close with, uh, well, how do I make something culturally relevant if I know that it's, you know, um, we're talking about transcription or translation of DNA that uh, this factor binds here and this factor binds over here and this is what we do. You make it relevant to your students. Like, why should they know this? If they're interested in forensics, this is something that they need to know. They need to know how DNA replicates. If they're interested in, um, let's say, uh, sports and you're a physics teacher, phys um, you're in charge of, of uh teaching these young folks kinesiology or biomechanics um, and they're your student athlete, this is when you bring that in. You bring that in, how physics and sports are interconnected. If you know uh, mathematics, you know, if you're teaching mathematics, having your student learn about different statistical methods that are used in not only sports arenas, um, but trading, um, Anything that your student is interested in, that that's your job. Your job is to actually welcome them and ask what their ideas are. Um, and I've I've tried to do that in some of my classes. I've also tried to do that in my lab. I've talked to students about, um, you know, why it's important for them to bring their full selves to the lab. That as they walk into the laboratory space, that doesn't mean that they check themselves out at the door, right? They can come in. Um, you know, I had a, a, a couple of young ladies in my class, in my class, in my lab, and uh, this was my research lab. And, you know, one of them's wearing, you know, like the long acrylic nails and the other one's got hoops on. And, um, you know, I've, I've also had students that, you know, maybe wear their, their shirts a little cropped up, you know, a little crop top or whatever. And the first thing they asked me is, um, you know, what do I need to change or what do I need to do to be in this lab? Um, and my response has and will forever be as long as I'm involved in in laboratory work or STEM work is that they don't have to change anything about who they are. Um, they can come in with those long nails. And and I, I was a little confused when she asked me and I said, you know, why are you asking me that? And she said, you know, somebody told her that she, had, she couldn't be in the lab with long nails because, you know, it's, it's dangerous. And like the, the, um, she couldn't open tubes and stuff like that. And the gloves would fit too snug. And, you know, my response is wear bigger gloves. Uh, learn how to use your nails to an advantage in the laboratory. Use different tools to open the tubes. Uh, there's these cool little like tools that you can use to open these tiny, tiny tubes up. 
I use them all the time because it messes up your fingers. It gives you like a callus on your thumb. Um, hoops, right? Uh, that was my other student. And you know, my first response to her was just don't catch anything on fire because we do, we work with dangerous things and you have to, you know, you have to uh, follow safety rules and, and recommendations. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if they're not doing something that's going to be, you know, their earrings catching on something or uh, their earrings catching on fire, their hair catching on fire, then let them be who they are. Um, you know, that's part of it. The other part of it is talking to students about some of the, the ethical concerns that we have in science. Um, you know, why don't we talk about Tuskegee? Why don't we talk about forced sterilization in LA? I'm an hour-ish, hour 15 away from LA, and many of my students had never heard about forced sterilization in LA. Um, most of them want to go into pre-health or pre-med. Um, you know, let's talk about smallpox and indigenous communities. And, you know, one of the questions that I've had folks ask is, why are we going to talk about this? How is this relevant to your class? How is it relevant to them learning about, you know, the, I don't know, feedback loops or sodium potassium pumps or balances in your, in your blood of, of different components that are, um, could then sort of trigger like a cascade effect. And, you know, my response to that is these people want to be health professionals. They need to understand the history. They need to understand um, why folks are hesitant. They also need to understand who came up with vaccines and the treatments and how that affected different communities so that we don't repeat that history. Um, they also deserve to know how to change that as practitioners in their own field, um, talking to their patients, learning their patient's history, learning that, yes, we all have this sort of certain common biological humanity, but that our culture affects everything that we do, that our culture affects who we are um, at home, at work, um, in life, and, and how that's going to present to different, you know, people's health. Um, if you're a researcher, uh, an investigator in a laboratory, how that's going to affect your um the way you communicate with patients, you know, how's that going to, how's that drug going to affect, um, you know, people that have uh, generational trauma, which we've seen is an epigenetic trait. Um, so all of those things are really important. Now, when I speak to, to educators, a lot of times what I hear is, well, that's going to take a lot of work. Uh, yes, it is going to take work. Um, but that's why you're in education. Uh, to to really provide and support for students. And, you know, I've participated in culturally responsive um, workshops, um, different types of training. And the bottom line is it can't be a one and done thing, right? You, I, I really want people to take away from this that one, our students already have knowledge. Two, they deserve to know the truth about being in science and that they belong in it that they belong being in STEM. And three, that as educators, it's our job to continue to grow and develop. Um, you can't go to one culturally responsive workshop and call it a day and like never go back. It is every day. It is, you know, looking at your practices, looking at what how you're running um, different activities in your classroom. Who's participating? Who isn't participating? Are you using methods that are going to alienate somebody? Um, and I have to think about that all the time. Um, you know, there, I mean, even recently, there have been things where I've said, I could have done that differently, or, I, you know, that wasn't engaging for everybody in the room. 
or what I said wasn't culturally sensitive or, um, you know, that I come in with my own biases. And I think as I go through teaching and now serving as a dean, creating access, thinking about access for students, all of those different things, right, are continually about being better. Um, it's not you go to one workshop and you never work on it again, or you change your syllabus once and then you don't look at it for, you know, 10 to 15 years. You look at it every year. You look at it every semester. Um, you look at it every chance you get. You take notes. You change things around. Um, and you get to a point where you're going to be able to recognize these things for yourself. And you're also going to be able to listen to your colleagues and take ideas from your colleagues or um, have conversations with your colleagues that are going to be a lot more fruitful and that are going to reduce that work. Um, and what I've seen is that when I change um, pedagogy or andragogy to be more culturally responsive, when I change the way that I teach things, not exactly or 100% what I'm teaching, right? I still have to teach about, as I mentioned earlier, like feedback loops. They're one of my favorite things, so I really like them. Or we're talking about parasites. Parasites aren't going to change, but the way that I talk about the parasite can change. I can ask my students to show up in the classroom um, and introduce myself ahead of time. I can ask them to tell me who they are. I can ask them to submit a, submit a video and tell me who they are as a human. Um, you know, beyond I'm a STEM major, I'm a bio major, and I'm a sophomore, and, you know, I want to do this, this, and that. No, wh who are you? What do you like to do? Do you have a job outside of this? Um, is that, you know, do you have other competing priorities that are going to prevent you from doing uh, collaborative work outside of the classroom? Um, what's your favorite song? Let's develop a Spotify list so that I can put it on uh, every time we meet for class and the, the song comes on, um, it's, you know, that doesn't take me more than 10 minutes out of my day. Um, give me the link to your Spotify uh, song, you know, to a song on Spotify that you like. And I add it to a playlist and I create the playlist for that class. Um, that doesn't take a lot of work. Um, what does take work is that self-reflection and acknowledging that you don't know everything. Um, I learn from people all the time. I learn, oh, that's a really great practice. I should do that. Oh, I'm going to change um, office hours to student hours. Or, oh, I'm going to um, change this particular sentence in my syllabus to, to something differently. Um, instead of yelling at you about plagiarism, I'm going to talk about why it's good to honor your own work and to honor the work of others. Those are all conversations that I'm going to have, that I can have with my students, that I can have with my faculty, that I can have with my staff that make a difference. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I always like to do and, and always try to do is to learn my students' names and to learn how to pronounce it correctly. That's helping them belong in STEM. It's a little thing, it takes me five seconds but it's so important. And I think, um, not I think, I know that that makes a difference. I know that it made a difference for me as a student and I know that it can make a difference for our students. So creating that anti-racist, culturally responsive space for our students, it's more than just a one and done thing. You can't go to one workshop and you know say you're done. It's reflection, it's pausing with your own thoughts, it's talking to your colleagues. It's 
being okay with discomfort. It's being okay with not knowing all the answers. It's being okay with um, understanding that others might know more than you. Um, and those others might be your students. So anyway, I, I love this question. Um, you know, I can probably talk about it for days and I'll probably ramble on or, or go around in a circle, but um, yeah, I, I really appreciate this question. Absolutely. You just affirmed a lot of the things I say when I talk about this exact topic, because I always say, start with yourself, right? And that's what you just said. It's like, there's a lot of like self-reflective work you have to do. Um, we want like this easy, like checklist way of like, in, you know, approaching our curriculum different, but it's like, you got to start with yourself and start with the students and start with their knowledge. Like that's what you're saying. Right. Um, I love the idea of like, you can't change what the cell, the makeup of the cell, right. It's the approach to the way we're, we're informing uh, students knowledge and abuelita pedagogy. I mean, that could be a thing. I could imagine students learning, wanting to go into medical field, like abuelitas have like their own, <laughs> their own ways of healing us. Yeah. Right. For sure. <laughs> but like that is powerful, right? Being like, and if you that's all you've ever heard your whole life, right? The abuelita pedagogy is like, but this is how I cure myself because that's what I was taught versus now you're telling me something different. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the number of times I've heard about vaporu, right? And like, well, vaporu mm -hmm. does, right? the abuelita pedagogy, but now the students have not only that knowledge, but they also have the knowledge that they've gained in the classroom. And I always encourage them to go explain it to their parents, explain it to mm. your abuelita, your tia, your whoever um, your chosen family might be, chosen or given family, uh, explain to them what you learned in the classroom and how mm. it relates to what they already know. Mm. Um, and so that that I think that's always really powerful for students. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What is in that little magical bottle anyways? <laughs> that little tiny green Vix bottle. <laughs> Something magical. Something magical. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's some science behind it, I'm sure. <laughs> somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> I'm not going to burst everybody's bubble on this podcast. <laughs> we want to believe. We want to believe. Awesome. So what about when it comes to mentoring? Like, what are the good elements of mentoring in a STEM context? Because that's such an important part, right, of STEM. Um, so what, what are things you have learned about mentoring students of color um, and students at HSIs? Yeah, no, that's mentoring students is probably the funnest thing that, I, that I've ever done um, and the most rewarding and also the hardest thing. Um, because students are all unique. They all come with their um, own ideas and aspirations and um, what they want to do when they get through, whether it's undergrad or grad school or whatever part of their life they're, they're moving through. And what I've really learned from students is that what they want is somebody to listen to listen to their dreams, to listen to their hopes, to listen to what they want to do. And as much as, you know, often as a mentor, I see a student in a specific way and want to sort of guide them in a specific area. I've definitely had students in the lab where I'm like, oh, you're an amazing researcher. Like, I really want you to go to grad school. And their plans are different. Um, and so I think mentoring is really listening to what our students want and supporting what they want and what is good for them at that moment as much as possible. 
Um, I've had students who have said to me, you know, I can't continue with school, um, going on to grad school yet because I have familial obligations. And so I keep track of those students and say, where are you at with this? What can I do? How can I support you? Um, Often what I've heard from others is, oh, well, I haven't talked to that student in a while, so I can't write them a letter of recommendation. Um, I have students that I worked with, you know, eight years ago that I'll still write letters of recommendation for because that's what my mentors did for me. And that changed my life. So it's thinking about, you know, what do our students want um, within their own educational and growth spaces? And then specifically in the lab, uh, one of the areas that I'll be honest, I hadn't talked, I hadn't talked or thought about very much until I had a more diverse group of students was um, I had um, two female identified students who were in the lab and they were both very feminine presenting. So nails, the hoops, um, you know, long hair. And one of the students asked me, do I have to take off my nails or cut my nails to be in the lab. And it was a foreign concept to me because I, I don't have long nails, so I've never had to worry about it. And my initial response was, why would you have to take, why would you have to like cut your nails to be in the lab? And her response was that, um, I guess one of the classes she was in, one of the faculty members had told her that she couldn't have long nails because she had to wear gloves and it was going to make it difficult for her to do science in that way. And I thought back to all of my friends in grad school who had long nails or wore the hoops or, you know, in, in when we're in the lab, one of the things they tell you for safety is you have to pull your hair back. You have to wear gloves. You can't have anything dangling because you can catch on fire. Those are all real issues. Those are real things. And I've seen people catch on fire in the lab. So um, that's a story for a different day. Um, but what this student taught me was that it was important to validate her experience and to validate how she was going to be comfortable in the lab. And my reaction was, no, you don't have to cut your nails. We'll get you bigger gloves. And it was as if I had said the most profound thing to her. Um, and I said, you know, your hoops, you know, just be careful. Like, you know, don't get caught on anything. If you feel like you're going to be working on stuff where you might get, you know, I don't want you to get your nice hoops in bacteria juice. That's disgusting. Um, you know, pull your hair back because we're going to be using fire. I don't want you to catch your hair on fire. I've caught my hair on fire in the lab because I use hair product and I leaned in too close to a Bunsen burner and I started smelling crispy stuff. Um, but to me, that was such a eye-opening moment of, wow, like she knows the science. Her concern is how I'm going to perceive her as a scientist in the lab. Am I going to think she's scientist enough? And that was very important to me to say to her and to any other student that came into the lab, you can't check yourself out at the door. When you come into this space, you come with all of your identities. And so bring them with you because those are going to be the things that are going to help us make great discoveries. Um, 
And she did. She stayed in the lab. Uh, COVID hit. We ended up going into a virtual space. And she's been accepted into a public health program for her master's. And I believe she's well into her first semester. But it it was that little thing that, you know, I I think if I had dismissed it or said, no, you have to change this or that, um, I don't know that she would have stayed in my lab. Um, but she stayed and, you know, super proud of her. Um, and I, I think it's really thinking about where our students are coming from and, you know, all of the things that we've been fed um, as queer, brown women, you know, however your intersectionalities come in, um, in the sciences and what makes a scientist, what does a scientist look like? Um, and a scientist can be, you know, high heels, hoops, um, long nails, lipstick in the lab, or it could be short hair, glasses like me, um, and short nails, you know, like it, it, a scientist is a person that, um, understands and loves the scientific process uh and coming in with our different identities that's what makes science unique um without it you know without those different identities um i don't think we would have made half of the discoveries that we've made in science over the last centuries um and so having students know that about themselves that they are a scientist because of what they look like is important yeah, for sure. That's a really great story. As someone who's wearing hoops right now and long nails, and you know I'm all about my high heels, I can feel that 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 woman's uh, concern, right? Like, if I can't bring that into the lab, then I'm going to change my major, right? Like, that matters. That's me. That's my identity, right? So mm-hmm. I, I could feel that. Yeah. But the reality is, I'm sure somebody, and it sounds like that's the case, somebody had already told her that wasn't what a scientist looks like. So, yeah. whereas you came back in and affirmed it as like, why not? <laughs> That's what a scientist looks like. A scientist looks like you. It looks like me. It looks like whoever's able to do the work, right? And wants to do the work. Wants to, yeah. Yeah, for real. That's awesome. So for the STEM faculty that are listening, what other so advice would you offer um, as far as doing this work at HSI? I asked you about teaching. I asked you about, I, about mentoring. Anything else that you would want to, for the folks that are really tuning in, like they've been waiting for this STEM episode, what other pieces of advice do you have? Dig deep. Dig deep into yourself. Um, you're a scientist already, so you know the content. The content isn't the problem. It's learning about who you are as an educator, who you are as an instructor, and who your students are. Um, What are the things that are important to your students? I mentioned this earlier in talking about, you know, how how being in the lab is important or um, my teaching philosophy and teaching biology. But the bottom line is going to be, how do you see yourself and how do you see your students? The -hmm. content is there. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of time. Um, But if I can say anything, it's that it's 100% worth it. Um, You become a better educator. You become a better human being. Um, You know, go to trainings and don't do these one-off trainings where you go to one training and then you never do it again. Um, You know, take this as seriously as you do your content. Your content is is probably your number one thing that you think about 
but learning about yourself and learning how to be a better instructor and learning how to honoring how to honor your students' cultural backgrounds is going to be some of the most important work that you do. So go to trainings, sign up for things, um, you know, reach out to your Title III and Title V directors on your campuses, to your NSF, HSI, STEM um, directors on your campuses. Get involved and do the professional development that you know you need. Um, I know I need it. I, I know that I go to, to professional development on the regular and I learned all the time and I learned of things that I'm doing um, now that I'm not teaching as much that I'm doing in my meetings that, you know, perhaps aren't as validating as they could be. Um, but you have to be open to that and you have to be vulnerable and you have to be OK with being wrong. Um, and so if, if there's a piece of advice uh, that I can give is don't take yourself too seriously. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we all have the ability to learn. We all have the ability to change. And if you're really serious about this work, you know, go change. Absolutely. It's a lifelong journey. Right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those of us that do this work, we know that, right? We're like not trying to arrive. We're just trying to keep moving. Exactly. And changing all the time. I mean, I learn from you all the time. I learn from other folks all the time. Of, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, like this is, mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or sometimes like, yes, I did this thing and it was awesome. Right. So just thinking about, you know, what you can do better um, and what you're already doing great. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned now you're not teaching as much and now you're spending more time in meetings. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, about now that you're in a leadership position, that's a different level of of being able to enact change and enact servingness. So how are you using your position as a dean, as a leader on your campus um, at an HSI to to do this work, right? And to, to really keep pushing for servingness. So I've been at Oxnard College little bit over three months now it'll be uh, beginning of the fourth month I think to tomorrow um and one of the great benefits of being at a school like Oxnard is that as far as I've been able to tell uh, folks are really hungry for learning and change and open to conversations about doing things differently and so one of the great areas that I get to to look over is faculty evaluations. And that is one of the most informative um, processes that I've ever been part of. Uh, One, you get to see folks in their element. You get to see what they're doing in the classroom. Uh, But what it also allows you to do is provide feedback. And so as I've been evaluating faculty and staff, this is where conversations about, you know, cultural relevancy and professional development are popping up um, really early in this process. And we have conversations about why it's important to continue to develop. Um, you know, I'm able to uh, recommend being being 
a dean overseeing the sciences and having a science background, I'm familiar with a lot of professional development opportunities that I know my faculty are going to be interested in. And so part of it is saying, hey, you know what, I really think you would benefit from going to this conference, or I think you would really benefit from participating in this professional development. You've stated as part of your goals that you want to be able to serve our students better. This is a way to do that. So that's one way. The other way is that there's um, opportunity now and uh, for me to have a seat at the table. And we have a fantastic upper leadership that really values the input of all of our deans um, and they trust us. They trust us with having information from our faculty and my faculty also trust that I'll share information in an accurate manner that really honors what they're feeling. And so that creates an opportunity to really make changes in different areas. So I know for us here at the college, um, creating additional access to our students is really important. And so how do we create access? How do we talk about access? So within our math departments, talking about um, for those that are outside of California uh, and that are within California, AB705 and AB1705. Um, AB705 is a policy that was passed that um, really gets students into co college transfer level courses immediately. So we don't have those remedial courses that um, many of our students were getting stuck in for years. And so we've had really interesting and deep conversations within our mathematics department. They had already started doing some of this work before I got here, but offering um, supplemental courses or offering um, you know, co courses that are support courses that are co-requisites to these transfer level courses like pre-calculus or college algebra or calculus, depending on what the student is doing. So the student isn't stuck in a cycle of, you know, taking courses that aren't going to be applicable to their degree, um, but that we do have these support courses and we have these additional resources available in a manner that is going to be supportive of our Latinx students. So, um, what is going to be helpful for our Latinx students to um, be successful? Uh, is it, you know, are we offering courses at the correct time of the day? You know, many of our students are first gen and they're, um, they're also first time parents um, or they have full time jobs. And so for us, it's really thinking about what does the schedule look like? Uh, which I never thought about before. Like, what, why do I think about the schedule? But, you know, are all of our, are, are of all intro bio classes in the morning? Well, what does that do for the student that works all day? Or maybe they have a part-time job and they work in the morning. No, we need to offer an, an evening class um, for some of our, our lecture courses. Do we offer in-person, hybrid, and online uh, fully asynchronous lecture courses for, for some of our areas. Um, others, we can't because some of the other schools won't accept them as transfer classes if they're fully online, which is a different topic for a different day. But looking at all those different policies of access with our faculty, with my faculty and saying, what can we do better for our students? Um, creating that schedule that is going to be a, uh, have a diverse um, time slots uh, that has uh, ability for students to coordinate their classes in a way that's going to be um, supportive of their life. 
um, you know, the reality of it is that our students are um, between that 18 to 36 age range. Um, some of them are straight out of high school. Some of them have been working for years and they're coming back to school um, offering short-term classes. That's something else that we've started stepping up um, and that I'm very supportive of as a dean and that we've talked about how do we get short-term courses for students that maybe they're coming back for the first time in a long time to college or maybe they're working and it's their first time in college. Um, they've been raising families or taking care of uh, loved ones or, you know, life just happened and they're coming back for the first time to college. Um, but maybe they don't want to be in a 16 week class. Can that class be eight weeks? Can it be 12 weeks? If we do an eight week math class, can we set up a second eight week math class right after it so that they can take the next level? And instead of having to wait an entire semester to take um, another math class, they can immediately jump into that next level math. Um, or, you know, maybe they start taking the math class and they figure out, oh, man, I don't remember a lot of this. I need a support class. So let's have a, a short term support class so that maybe they drop the first class, but we pick them up in the next class and ensure that they're retained because now we have a support class that goes with it. And that faculty member can basically um, guide them to, to register for that next class. So there are a lot of conversations here at the college and, and within my division about access and making sure that students are um, being supported in the best way possible. And so now I get to have those conversations, which I was never part of before. Uh, you know, how do we, how do we reach out to high schools? How do we get our dual enrollment, um, increased? When can we offer classes? Um, you know, what do we need so that our students are successful here, um, and increase that enrollment? Um, not only for ourselves, but really for our community. The Oxnard community, um, is, a beautiful place. It is um, probably the only place outside of El Paso that I could ever consider home, uh, like really deeply in my soul. And the people here are just amazing. And so why not give them the best opportunity to be successful? And if we can do that through policy and logistics, um, then I think that gives us, that's our duty as a community college is to serve our community. And I, I feel like the leadership here really understands that part. Absolutely. I'm going to shout out, say shout out to the 805 because I say it every time because <laughs> we'd be having guests. <laughs> shout out to the 805. I'm from the 805 and several of our guests have been from the 805. So I'll start there. But what I wanted to say is as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, so the first part of questions you were talking about, like in the classroom, the curriculum, the pedagogy, and there's been a lot of focus in that area in HSIs, right? We spent a lot of time doing that, but then you really lit up and talked about this really important part that I don't think we've done as much work on, which is the decision-making and the leadership and the policies, which I talk about in my new book, right? I'm like, yes, curriculum, pedagogy, important, but what are the decisions that are being made? And the reality is with both your answers or those stream of answers, you said, what is the student's need, right? Like you put students at the center. You said, who are they? Are they working? Do they have to go home and take care of parents? Do they need a night class instead of a day class? Do they have children? Do they, you know, all these things that in reality is like, we have to do student-centered work at HSIs because otherwise you're going to miss it. 
Yep. Right. Yeah. Such an important part. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, without doing that, we've all seen across higher ed, um, especially community colleges that we have had a decrease in enrollment and that's been seen in a lot of our STEM courses. And so thinking back on what that might be for me, I think it's been a realization of how can we make these STEM courses more accessible to our students so that they can be successful? You know, what are the different areas that we need to um, continue to implement? And of course, culturally relevant pedagogy is right up there, along with all of these logistical and policy and practice matters, um, because we can change the curriculum all we want. If the student can't make it to campus, that then we're not reaching that student we've lost that student. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how culturally relevant or anti-racist or significant to their lives it is if they can't exactly. actually access it. Exactly. Yeah. Such an important, important piece. Um, so you have done work at both four-year and two-year HSIs. Mm-hmm. And now you're you know, in a two-year HSI. And I think a lot of the stuff you're talking about is unique to the HS- to the two-year context, um, but maybe not. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not there are, you know, the differences you see between two-year HSIs and four-year HSIs or are HSIs HSIs, right? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think we need to dig in deeper into the differences in order to really do good work at both. Yeah, no, I I think particularly being in California, this puts us in a really different space, especially being at a two-year college. So the other, the four-year colleges that I've been at in the past, one of them was a private liberal arts institution, and then the other one was a four-year uh, public institution. And what I found at both of those institutions was that um, as HSIs, um, it didn't seem to be as much as part of the forefront of knowledge. Um, HSI-ness seemed to be a little bit more siloed. And I think that's changing. I think uh, with the work that you've done, the work that others have also brought up as well, uh, that wonderful first episode of season one about, you know, are you serving or are you serving with a dollar sign? I think that's created a lot of interest in expanding um, the role of HSI directors and the HSI um, STEM uh, grant uh, directors as well. And we've seen in the last few years, at least, the development of HSI director positions that oversee an entire institution or are responsible for initiatives for an entire institution. Um, Dr. Marla Franco is a, a good example of that. Dr. Cindy Muñiz is another example of that. Um, my previous institution um, had me as HSI director, uh, HSI um, initiatives director. Uh, and so we're seeing these kind of larger positions being created, but it's a really different thing at a two-year public California community college where everything's very tightly regulated. Um, and so I, I I really think that um, within this space, there's a very big difference in the way that um, grants or initiatives are tied together. Um, for example, at Oxnard, we have three, I believe, separate grant directors. Um, 
and one of them is a title, two of them are title five directors, one's a title three, and we just got another uh, grant, another title five. Um, so we have all of these grants and they're all separate directors. Um, and I, I'm yet, I'm still trying to find out, right? Because I'm new at Oxnard. Um, I have wonderful support from the president and vice president of academic affairs um, to do a lot of HSI work. And so I think there's, there's a new movement to try to tie all of these pieces together. But I, I have a feeling that this is um, not just a feeling, but I've seen it where um, at our community colleges, we have our Title Fives and our Title Threes and our HSI STEMs. They're all different entities and there isn't a lot of cohesiveness within that. Um, and when we think about you know, our STEM students, tying it back to STEM, when we think about our STEM students, our STEM students can greatly benefit from that Title V work. Um, our Title V students can greatly benefit from that Title III HSI STEM work. Um, and bringing them together, I think, would help create some of that cultural competency for our students now um, so that they're they're actually learning those pieces as they go through college. Um, and, you know, really looking at what that might look like in a two-year college, particularly in California, because we're so heavily regulated, I would love to see um, a thought piece or, or a, you know, big research study to say, you know, wh where are HSI directors housed? Um, who do they report to? Um, here at Oxnard, uh, I believe they all report to our VPs. So they either report to our VP of Academic Affairs or our VP of Student Affairs, and they have a great relationship um, and they share a lot of information with each other. Uh, but I do worry at other institutions, what if they don't have a great relationship? Um, what if there isn't information sharing? And so I'd love to see more information out there about how grants are being managed um, at the leadership level and who's getting to know all this information um, and, and how do we how do we make that into an institutionalized process so that we have more information to share with our own campus communities about being an HSI. Absolutely. You want to do that study together? Let's do it. <laughs> I'm down. That is an important question, though, right? It's like, where are these initiatives being housed? Um, I am working with a, a couple other California community colleges right now, and it's exactly like you said, like two, three grants going on at the same time, and they all have different directors, and they're all in different mm -hmm. spaces, and they're, they have different things. Um, I guess there's some pros and cons to that, right? Like, I mean, these grants do allow you a lot of autonomy. I think we know that, right? To do what what you write the grant to do or whoever wrote the grant. Um, if you're implementing it and didn't write it, right? To do have that autonomy. Um, but there is also some benefits of coming together right? and, and doing Absolutely. this work together. Yeah, yeah for sure. Having people talk would, would, I think, remove some of the challenges that people face in running um, some of these grants. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it, you know, started off that way because there were few grants that were being provided at the time and you know, there's still limited funding no matter what. Mm -hmm. but, you know, how do we, how do we manage that piece? And I, I love to see, you know, what other folks are doing and what has been working, what hasn't been. Yeah, for sure. Another interesting thing you said is that in California and particularly the community colleges, y'all are very regulated. Right. Which I talk about that in my new book, too, is like the external influences. If you're in a state that the policy is 
allowing or not allowing servingness, it's, it, it affects your ability to do this work, right? So, I mean, is that what you're seeing as like, are the restrictions helping or hindering the servingness efforts? I think it, it can be a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. So it depends on the policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are, you know, we report to the California Community College Chancellor's Office. And um, an example of this was AB 705, which I mentioned earlier in the, um, as we were talking. I think it's a good idea. Um, AB 705, getting our students straight into transfer level courses. Um, I think the, the way that it was proposed was... I think a little bit jarring for folks um, and it's taken five years to implement AB 705, which specifically about our math courses and English courses as well. Um, so in some cases it can be very beneficial. Um, I think AB 705 is an example of that. Um, but then in other, you know, cases, there's um, another uh, policy coming down um, and I don't remember the the number off the top of my head. It might be 928. Um, that is essentially removing the requirement for lifelong learning or physical education, um, kinesiology classes, which, you know, when we think about our students and we think about who we're serving, you know, they might need that one unit of, of a kinesiology course or a physical education course or exercise science course to get them to that 12 units. And maybe they can't mm-hmm. afford to go to 14 or 16 units with an additional mm-hmm. class. Or maybe it's just not good for them to take that level of units. Um, and so I, I think we're limiting our students' ability to make choices for themselves. Um, in, in some of these cases, I think some of are, are very good. Others are, I think, well-intentioned, but I, I'm not sure that the impact um, is really known. And we won't know for years. And for mm-hmm. me, that's just not, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right to say, well, we're going to try this out and see how it goes, which I know how, but you know, most things in education, that's usually how it goes. We're going to try it out and see if it works. Um, but when we're when we're talking about things like um, courses on you know lifelong learning courses, uh, personal growth courses that help students with those maybe those basic skills that they may not have, um, I think particularly for community colleges and the populations that we serve, um, I don't know that that's the healthiest approach, um, and I think we're gonna turn students away. I think students are going to feel disenfranchised from the community college system. Um, And so I think we really need to be aware of how the impact of these different policies are going to affect our students. And for those of us that are in in the community, um, we don't even have to be in a leadership position. You know, call your congressperson, call your senator, call your local officials um, to say, hey, I've looked into this. I think this is going to affect my community negatively. So I, I don't think we should pass this. Um, these are all Senate bills or or congressional bills through the, the um, California government. So for us, I think it's really important to just be aware that these policies are coming down and how they're going to affect our students. How are they going to affect our STEM students? How are they going to affect our sociology students? How are they going to affect our students in the liberal arts or humanities? Um, and and have a real stock in um, what we think as educators, this is the impact of this is going to be. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that through and through your thread is that how's it going to affect the students, right? The students at the center, because the reality is policies sometimes spark people's concerns about, well, then now we don't have courses to offer. And now we, you know, like, it, how does it affect us, right? As, as, oh. as faculty and leaders, right? Versus like your, your, your strong commitment to like, no, how does it affect the students? Right. Because, you know, and I know those conversations come up. Right. With like uh, within departments, within faculty. Right. Within. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So but for you, HSIs and serving this is is at the core is students. Right. Like how is it going to affect students and how do we how do we do this work with and for our students at the at the center? So which is why you're a good a good leader for an HSI. So thank you for being here with me. Of course, you got to um, answer the last question. Nobody gets out of here without answering the last question. So the final question, and it can go any which direction. It could be in English and Spa- or Spanish, however you want. But ¿Qué pasa, HSIs? HSIs are changed. HSIs are the future. And I think HSIs are what's going to be, they're going to be what's going to get us through some very challenging times in education that I, you know, I think are coming forward, but HSIs and our students, more importantly, our Latinx students are going to be what leads us into some great times in education. So I think that's what's up with HSIs. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here with me today. So thank you. With that, we are going to sign off. Thank you.